What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Hindsightless, the sporadic podcast where I talk about life, role-playing games, or whatever else might be running around inside of my head. But mostly role-playing games, because even when you think they're dead, they come back for one last kill. What is up, folks? How's it going? It's It's been a minute, but I'm back. I got a bunch of calls. I don't know if it's a bunch, but I, I got some calls that I want to play. Um... And yeah, let, let's let's wrap for a little bit. So, at time of recording, last night, my buddy came over and installed my new curved shower curtain rod. Cause I know this is the content you guys are here for, but here we go. <laughs> installed my new curved shower curtain rod and new shower head. And folks, if you have a shower curtain rod in your shower and you don't, have one of those curved shower curtain rods you are not living life right man i had one at my old place but you have to install them so you can't really take them with you i mean you could you could uninstall them obviously but kind of a pain in the ass so i just left mine at the old place and so for the past year or so i haven't had one and showering without one of those things it's like you're showering in a coffin those curved shower curtain rods give you so, so much more room inside of the shower without taking up a bunch of room in the bathroom. They they really are a godsend. They're amazing. And my new shower head is, it's a big one. It's, oh my God, it's so rad. Like, he came over, we went out to eat. He put it, he put everything. It took him like, I don't know, half an hour or so to install all that stuff. We had some beers. We watched the basketball game. He left around 10 and I was like, cool, I'm taking a shower now. <laughs> don't normally shower at 10 o'clock at night, but I had to. And it was every, every single thing I was hoping it would be. My shower is now infinitely better. Oh my God. It was just amazing. It was absolutely amazing. Um, yeah, so that was, <laughs> that was some shower talk, dude. Again, the content you folks are here for, but it, it's, it's, the, it's the little things in life, right? It's the simple things in life that matter. You know, I, I, I don't have a car. I don't have a bunch of other bullshit. I, I, I don't buy a lot of things, right? I'm not a collector or anything like that. So to get something like that, like this, that just steps up my quality of life by, you know, a good, a good few steps is, it's just nice, right? And it's not even expensive, like, for less than 50 bucks, I got basically a brand new awesome shower, better water pressure, better, more room, it's just, it's freaking amazing, man, and I love showers, especially in a good shower, ugh. Anyway, super stoked about that. Um, let's get into some calls, and that might bring us to some RPG discussions, right? <laughs> All right. This first call is a new caller, the first-time caller. He was making the rounds on the Anchor Sphere. It's awesome. Lex Mandrake of Dank Dungeons, which is just a cool moniker anyway. So, yeah, let's hear from Lex, dude. Take it away, my dude. Hey Joe, it's me, Lex Mandrake, someone you don't know but really likes your show, calling in for the first time. Uh, I've been catching up on a bunch of podcasts, and at the risk of beating a dead topic, uh, I wanted to mention something that I thought about the whole pre-programmed moves conversation. 
And it's that, uh, have you ever run or played the Free League Alien RPG? Because the Xenomorphs in that, their stat blocks are just, it's like a random table. That's all their actions. So nothing is scripted, but also the GM doesn't control it. Nobody controls it. It's just all random all the time. And I was really hesitant about that when I first saw it. Like, I didn't think it was going to work. And then I ran it, and it was amazing. It's like, it really drives home this idea that they have, like, alien intelligence and that they're very, like, animalistic. So it was it was awesome. It was great. I really like that kind of way of, of thinking with creature design. Uh, and also on the whole investment during and, like, between sessions topic... Ah, uh, gosh, I can really sort of see where both you and Jason are coming from on this. I was in a game once where we divided up treasure that way, but it was also kind of a Monty Hall game, so this was happening very frequently. And the Game Master would also try to, like, have us roleplay little, like, side scenarios whenever we'd step away from the group over, you know, text message or whatever in between sessions. And it was... It ended up being like a lot. I mean, I was playing a thief character and I would be like, oh, I sneak off like at the end of the session to go scout this thing. And then he would send me a Facebook message and he'd be like, oh, you find such and such. What do you do? And I'd say, "Okay, well, I'm going to just bring that information back to the party for the beginning of next session. And he would be like, oh, well, hold on. What after you do when you go to turn around this happens and i'll be like oh okay well then i do this thing and then i go back to the party and he would say well then this wrinkle gets introduced what do you do then and pretty quickly i realized i was spending way more energy on the game when we weren't at the table <laughs> than when we were at the table and i don't know i'm someone who really likes the structure of i have set aside a time during the week to do this thing and when I'm suddenly having to do a lot of that thing during other times of the week, it becomes grating because I'm like, no, I've set aside these other times for doing other things and I cannot pay the attention that I want to pay to the thing that I'm not doing in its normal time slot, <laughs> right? So now my situation was very different than you guys, obviously, and I think at the end of the day, I probably still side with you on that whole thing, but I just, you know, that's the other side of the perspective. Just, yeah, consider it. Why not? Uh, but hey, uh, that's it for me. Very long call-in. Keep up the good work, Joe. Thanks for the podcasts. Awesome call, dude. Thank you, Lex. Thank you so much for that call, man. Yeah, no, that was really cool that you called in with that other perspective because what you were talking about where the Dungeon Master was basically forcing you to do play-by-posts without your consent, that's that's bad, man. Don't do that, folks. Uh, yeah, I that, that would be annoying. I would be very annoyed by that. Um, so thank you for that other side of the coin because it is. Um, and then as far as the Alien RPG goes, no, I haven't played or ran it or read it or anything, but I do like the idea when you have a creature that is so alien, it it's a cool idea to be like, hey, it's alien, so it's not going to think like you. Here's this random table of things that it will do. Also, as Jules mentioned in the call-in episode, sometimes it can be hard for Dungeon Masters like Jules, like me, and like others out there, to be mean to 
the PCs, right? As mean as we could be or maybe even should be. So, again, having stuff like a random table of the things a monster do really helps with that. Yeah, man. And so I was Googling around for Lex Mandrake Dank Dungeons, and the first thing that popped up, and the only thing I could find, was the Bandcamp page for Lex Mandrake Dank Dungeons. And that... I can't imagine there's more than one Lex Mandrake of Dank Dungeons. And the reason I'm saying that name so much is because it's just, it's boss, man. Lex Mandrake. Sounds very powerful. I love it. Um, But I included the link to the Bandcamp page because I really dug it, dude. I listened to a couple songs. One was called, I think, The Iron Bell. And another one was called Incantations. And it sort of reminded me of... Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with John Carpenter's album Lost Themes. Yes, the horror director has an amazing album called Lost Themes. And your your Bandcamp page for, I think it's called Lightless, Lightless Kingdoms. It, it reminded me of that, of John Carpenter music. It reminded me a little bit of Zombie, Z-O-M-B-I, which is a two-piece band. Um, if you haven't heard zombie, check out zombie. Anyway, dude, I, I really enjoyed your music. So I thought that was awesome. Uh, yeah, but let's stick on the topic of player engagement with a call from our buddy, Carl, the geomologist of the geomologist presents podcast and YouTube channel. All you need now, Carl is a blog and then you'll have a media empire, man. Anyway, dude, Carl, what do you got to say? Well, it's a good thing I heard Jason's response to his snark and then your snark back because I thought he was serious and then I was going to give this long rant about player engagement and what it means to be part or how that is part and parcel with being a good player. But I think it kind of is part of being a good player. And I, you know, it's very interesting that, so I'll give you an example very recently. I mean, I was going to tell a war story about player yelling at another player in a game um and that was that was because really the player characters in an awesome pathfinder one game that was derailed shortly after this because of player versus player yelling at each other um uh, you know how, how it goes in pathfinder one sometimes the players use all their resources they're pretty exhausted you need to fall back fall back and one player said no i'm going to keep kicking in the doors because that's what my player would do and it nearly got another player killed, and he really liked his character. He gets invested in his, in his characters, and uh, it almost ended up being a TPK. I could think they got away by the skin of their teeth. They still had to fall back, but that player just got up and started cussing at the player that was kicking down the doors. So, yeah, I guess it's happened, and, you know, it can definitely derail a campaign. But anyway, player engagement. So I, I ran Walking Dead, and I, I don't know, I just got really excited about it. I invested a lot. I made a map of, like, Central Texas and put the, where the player's haven was and put all the different sites and all that kind of stuff. And I was very excited. I'm like, oh, this could be a really cool campaign. But then, you know, when I get there, I, I felt like some of the players really got into it. Um, they really did. And, and uh they, it seemed like they were. We really would have loved to see a campaign, but then there's one pretty much of a vocal player who's like, "Well, if we do this, 
I'm just not going to be with the group anymore because we have so many other games we got to finish. So that's just kind of discouraging because the player doesn't want to engage in something that, you know, as a GM, you do. You invest a lot of time, you engage, and maybe that's part of your quote-unquote job as a GM, but you really would like some return in, in kind. And I guess that's what it does get discouraging. And then what happens, what tends to happen, though, what I've seen tends to happen, there are players that really do engage. I would say, for example, Amy is very engaged in our Twilight 2000 campaign. And because she's very engaged, it could seem like it drowns out the other players. But she always says, what do you guys think? And maybe one other player will chime in, and that's another player who's engaged, and the rest, crickets. So whose fault is that if they don't get a say in what's going on or how the game moves or what direction the game is going? They don't because they don't engage. And I can see that similarly in like a game, say like Traveler. And I feel like I sent a message like this, but maybe I didn't, where, you know, some players engage in a different way and that they, they get really into the space trucking or, or ship design and all that kind of stuff. And another player feels like left out because they don't get into it and they don't, but it really what it boils down to is they just don't engage. So I, I think that that's part of the, the gameplay, especially nowadays where, you know, we're limited by, you know, two and a half to three hour game and we want to play. We don't want to do all the stuff that's important to the game, but it's not germane to the action, I think. And I think that's why discords and, and you know, formally Google Plus and all those platforms were so awesome about that is that you could do that. And if you don't as a player, I mean, do you as a player feel slighted? Should you feel slighted? Because you don't take the time to engage. All right, I guess that's a rant off. Sorry for the long message. Maybe if you feel like this, you don't have to add this, but if you feel like this, Joey, um, maybe we can go get together and talk about it carl you are the king of crazy rpg horror stories man <laughs> thank you for that message dude yeah we we should get together and talk about it sometime but there's 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 a lot to unpack there um so first off the first part of the story where you're talking about the one player in the pathfinder game who was just kicking down doors when everybody was low on resources yeah, that sucks, man. I, I I hate that kind of shit. This is what my character would do. And then that character gets all the other characters killed and now all the players are pissed. That, yeah, that, that stuff, it drives me bonkers. Um, but again, that goes back to, you know, table dynamics, man. Like, with everybody talking to each other and stuff. I don't know, that's just... Th those types of situations suck it's a bummer for sure and then as far as like the player engagement when you're talking about your walking dead game so i i i did did you talk to your group about hey i have this new walking dead game that i want to run or did you kind of <clears throat> show up and like hey i got this new game we're gonna play um because that that plays into it too right like we can't none no player is beholden to engage in a game 
they don't want to engage, they don't have to. And if they don't want to play a game, I, it's okay for a member of the group to be like, nah, I think I'm going to sit this one out. I'm not really feeling this one, right? Like, you know, Jason invited me a while back to play in a Planet of the Apes, Planet of the Apes game. And there were a bunch of cool people playing in it. But, you know, I've never been a real big Planet of the Apes game guy or just Planet of the Apes in general. And I was like, hey, that sounds awesome, but I think I'm going to sit this one out. And I think that's totally okay. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, if the guy you were talking about said, I'm leaving the group if we do this, um, <laughs> that's a slightly different thing. But also, that's also okay. He is allowed to do that. Um He's allowed to not engage. And that's that's where the whole thing with communication comes into play and expectations and all that shit um, is, yeah, it all boils down to communication, right? Like, nobody's got to engage, but if you don't engage, then, you know, as Carl mentioned, you might miss out on some stuff. You know, if you're not putting your thoughts out there for the rest of the group to mull over. So, yeah, again, all, all this comes back to communication, talking to your group um, and just, you know, just working it out. Right. Because we don't have a lot of time to play anymore. Um, you know, I haven't played Wrath of the Righteous for we haven't played in like a month now because we only play every other week and we missed this session so now it's been a month and yeah i i really want to play when we're playing um but yeah dude it it it, it all comes back to communication right carl like that that's what it's all about we got to talk to each other we got to talk to our group um and yeah, just play cool games with each other because that's what it's all about, man. Uh, okay, but let's let's kind of shift gears here a little bit. In the last episode, there was a call from Ray Otis, and he was out on a hike doing cool stuff on a rad adventure as he was leaving me a message. And he talked about death moves for monsters, like when the monster's dying, its final death throws and talked about cool moves for that. And so that's what these next couple calls are. Um, I don't know who's next. It's either Merc or Jason. So let's find out together. Hey, Joe, this is Michael or Merc the Meek. Uh, I'm just listening to your call-in episodes. Just got done with Ray Otis's messages. And uh, I love your comment about how he's going on an adventure. So I thought I would share that I currently am hiking on a trail. So I am joining in the adventure to give you a call. Um, I, yeah, I really love what Ray Otis was saying, especially the last part about you, a monster attacking even though it's dead. I, I think that's really cool. I want to incorporate that at some point. Um, I think in 4E, there's probably other systems... Uh, if a creature got to half hit points, they were considered bloodied, and I think some abilities went unlock at that point. So, uh, you know, getting down to the last 10 hit points or something of a creature, I mean, it'd be cool if they went into like a an absolute frenzy and they go Nova on you or something. That would be cool. But then, yes, also that ambiguity, 
excuse me, ambiguity of uh, the creature's down, but it's still twitching. Do we trust to go over there? I, <laughs> it would be fun to see a dragon faking its death. And once you go over, like, I'm going to rip out a fang or something. It just swallows you whole. That would be awesome. But yeah, so far, I'm liking your episode. And I can't wait to hear what else you have to say. Hey, Michael. Thanks, man. Uh, yeah, dude. Death moves. Like, well, the, the idea of a dragon faking its death to lure in unsuspecting adventurers is brilliant, dude. That's absolutely brilliant. Um, yeah, 4E absolutely did have the bloodied thing when monsters would get down below half. You'd, like, flip over their monster card and they'd have a different suite of abilities that they could use. And that was pretty cool, man. I, I enjoyed that. I didn't play a lot of 4E. But I like that part of it. Um, what else, man? Like, yeah, the whole idea of, you know, we see it in horror movies all the time, right? Where they think they've killed the killer and then they go over there and the killer's still alive. We even see it in Crawl where we think uh, we think the hero defeats the bad guy. But no, not quite. And it, it's a trope and it's awesome. Uh, in Pathfinder, one of my favorite low-level monsters, which can really mess up a party, even though it's pretty low-level, is called a burning skeleton. Because when you kill it, it explodes for, like, a D6 damage, you know, to everybody within five feet of it. And I, I just, like, it's like a little fu. Like, <laughs> it's just, oh, you killed me? Well, boom! <laughs> Take that. And it's fun, man. So thank you for that call. Thank you for the awesome idea of a dragon faking its own death. That's genius. And speaking of genius, let's get into our buddy Jason. He's got more to say about rad death moves. Jason, take it away. Hey, Drew, Jason here. Listen to your call catch-up episode. You know, in reference to what Ray was saying, with the rattlesnake and the head cut off and all that, I was listening to something else recently. I think it was Monster Man. Uh, James Holloway's podcast, but it's talking about how, you know, how long a head will still, maybe it was, no, no, you know what, it wasn't, so you can disregard that, this, it wasn't Monster Man, I know now where I saw that, anyway, I was listening to something else recently, that I'm not going to tell you where I was listening to it, but the idea that a severed human head is, you know, the oxygen there is still, still going to operate for X amount of time, right? So doctors that were getting beheaded during the French Revolution would do experiments where they would, you know, tell their colleague, you know, well, I'm going to get beheaded here, so I'm going to blink, blink my eyes and see how long I'm going to keep blinking my eyes after my head's chopped off, and uh, you know, and they hold my head up, and they would do these experiments. And I want to say it was like 20, 30 seconds. I could be wrong on that. But you'd have to do the research. But the, the idea that it, you know keeps going even as long as there's that oxygen, as long as something to keep it working, it is kind of interesting. With the snake, I, I wonder if it's more just, you, you touched it, and it, it was a kind of a reflex, like death rose kind of thing. But, but yeah, so interesting thought there. As far as um, Herc the Meek and the idea that the would the Lord of the Rings be popular if the Hobbit hadn't been out? I think so. I It's hard to say, because like everybody else, I've read the Hobbit first. But I think so. I think, I know you were bored by the first couple chapters, but I wasn't. I was drawn into the world. I was enchanted by it, and, and I really enjoyed it. 
And then by the time we hit chapters three, four, and five, now we have this sense of dread coming up. And we have this, um, you know, as they're chased through the woods and, and this, this pending sense of dread. I mean, when Mary's revealed there at the, the ferry, or as they're going to the ferry, I, I mean, you really think that might be a dark rider there, not Mary, right? Spoilers. But, it, yeah, I, I think it works very well. And, and I look forward to seeing how it goes. And I think the ability to read these books, if you didn't know anything about Tolkien, if you didn't know The Hobbit, if you didn't know any of the background, and all you know and all you experience is through reading it as you go, think about the kind of reveals you're going to have when you find out what the Black Riders really are. I mean, wow. We, we've got some great stuff ahead of us. Yeah, dude. So I don't think I'm going to do the research of getting beheaded and seeing how long I can blink for. I don't think I'm going to do that research, man. <laughs> I I've, I remember hearing about that stuff as well during the French Revolution, where the doctors would do the blink stuff. It, it's it makes you think. It really makes you think about yeah what it is to be alive and to have a body and all that stuff, man. It's it's pretty goddamn crazy. Which you know, of course, then monsters can do some cool shit when they die. But then, should characters, should PCs get a final move before they die? I mean, a lot of times we'll give players, like, a final speech as their character is dying. But should they get, like, a final burst or something to be able to do something when they die? Huh. I don't know. What do we think of that, folks? Should PCs also get a death throw move? Uh, maybe, because that's kind of sweet, man. I don't know. What do you guys think? Let me know. And then, as far as the Tolkien stuff goes, nice. That's going to lead us perfectly into this next bit. But, yeah, I don't know. Because the first two chapters and the prologue of Fellowship, they, they do a decent job of setting up the world. But if you didn't have The Hobbit... It, it it would be a lot to take in. Ah, so I don't know. It's funny, though, because... So Tolkien wrote The Hobbit. It got published. And then the publishers came up to him and said, Hey, we want a sequel to The Hobbit because this thing is selling like hotcakes. We want a sequel. And he's like, Yeah, I have this awesome... Because originally, The Hobbit wasn't set in the same world as Lord of the Rings and The Silmarillion. But Tolkien was like long and short was basically yeah i have this awesome whole legendarium this whole world of the silmarillion and all this stuff and they're like yeah i don't know and he's like okay well i have this other story and i could work in the ring and everything and make it a sequel but nobody will understand it if i don't release the silmarillion along with this thing that i call lord of the rings and they're like yeah we'll take lord of the rings and tolkien's like but no one's gonna get it if they don't have the silmarillion and look what happened right like <laughs> lord of the rings sold like crazy the silmarillion did, did not get published until after tolkien's death so you know who knows man right <laughs> lord of the rings probably would still be as popular without the hobbit but awesome call jason thank you for that man uh let's get into some more lord of the rings talk with spencer spence take it away my man hi joe spencer here 
and I'm just calling in in response to my call, Mike, Merck the Meek, <laughs> got there in the end, and his call about Frodo's privileged background. And I was just thinking, I know I'm not in the book club, so maybe I shouldn't be getting involved. And I'm also aware that Tolkien specifically states that Lord of the Rings isn't an allegory for the Second World War. But I do fail to see how something like that would not have an impact on a story set during wartime. With that in mind, thinking about the draft situation, people being called to fight, a lot of folks who'd have, up until that point, probably led privileged, very comfortable and probably quite sheltered lives found themselves thrown into situations where they were, you know, brothers in arms with folks from all kinds of social backgrounds. And they've had to toughen up pretty quickly, no doubt. A journey that I'm sure would be very familiar to Frodo. And while there are many heroes that are knights, princes, warrior kings, there are still plenty of folk heroes from humble beginnings. I mean, that's certainly a trope. Zero to hero and all that. So, anyway, I just wanted to call in and share that. It's nice to be able to call up and talk about something other than sausages for a change. Take care, Joe. Bye-bye. Ah, man, it's always nice to hear from you, Spencer. I mean, it's cool that you're talking about something other than sausages, but also sausages right anyway folks if you don't know what we're talking about there go back and i think the episode is called sausage party because <laughs> i'm a classy boy but yeah man like spencer you're yes you know tolkien kind of railed on about how lord of the rings is not an analogy to world war one world war two industrial anything he's no it's not an analogy but i mean you're right how could it not be his ex tolkien's experiences during world war one and then with world war two on the horizon like absolutely it had to come into play and so we do see bits and pieces of it in the story and it's oh man he's just he's awesome right and then yeah, with with the what you were talking about with the draft of just kind of shaking up society like that, where all these people who are leading comfortable, privileged lives get thrown into the shit, and now they come back, and things are different, man. Shit like that changes societies and cultures and everything. War, yeah. Oh, man world wars crazy shit anyway let's not go there <laughs> but zero to hero right like it's funny because zero to hero it is a trope especially in like D, D and in other stories but that's not what we see in lord of the rings like frodo is not a zero and in the hobbit bilbo was not a zero and so yeah, they're they're these regular not regular, they're above regular. They're they're you know, cream of the crop basically. They're they're 
rich, they're privileged. And then they set out on an adventure. And like I'm about to talk about, we see some we see some changes as they go. So yeah, with that said, man, thank you for that call, Spencer. It's always, always great to hear from you, no matter what you're talking about, whether it be sausages or world wars or whatever, man. I just I just like hearing your voice, dude. So yeah, man, on that note, let's get into my book report. Um, let, let's talk more, a lot more about Lord of the Rings. Let's get into the religion of Lord of the Rings. Spoilers, there isn't one. All right, so let's talk Lord of the Rings. We just finished reading chapters six and seven and those are the two chapters that introduce us to the character of tom bombadil who is sort of a divisive figure which i don't understand i mean he's a little silly and stuff but i i freaking love tom bombadil he's a total boss um but what we also see is is more more character growth from my old nemesis Frodo, which is nice, right? Like I know every <laughs> I've talked about Frodo before, but I I feel like me coming in with a slightly negative impression of Frodo, maybe more than slightly, will give me a more nuanced and deep appreciation of Frodo's character growth because if you go into the story thinking Frodo is this perfect hero then he doesn't really change that much through the story he just gets worse and worse but if you go in thinking he's a spoiled little trust fund hobbit uh suffering from what's that I, I posted it in the discord but it's such a stupid word I forget alfluenza whatever that bullshit defense some rich kid came up with after he probably i don't know anyway anyway i'm way off topic but yeah no you're you're seeing some character growth from frodo and it's it's interesting it's pretty cool man i don't want him to suck i don't want frodo to suck but you definitely are seeing some character growth where he's starting to change one of one of my favorite parts in the book is when he's talking to when Frodo is talking to Tom Bombadil's girlfriend, life partner, wife, whatever, Goldberry. And there Frodo is asking Goldberry, "Who is Tom? What is what is freaking Tom Bombadil?" And she says he's the master I'm going to get the quote wrong, but he's basically the master of wood, wind, wood, wind, and hill. He's the master of these forests. And so Frodo's like, oh, okay, so he owns all this forest. He's the master of it, so he owns all this. And Touchberry, or sorry, Goldberry, <laughs> Touchberry, anyway, um, Goldberry gets, it talks about how her smile fades away. She's like, no, that would be that would be a burden no he doesn't own this he's just the master of it and it's a really good point to drive home to frodo because at that point frodo assumes as shown in that discussion that 
if you're the master of something, i.e. the way Frodo is the master of Sam, that means you own it. That means you own the thing you're the master of. And Goldberry disabuses Frodo of that. It's like, no, no, no. You can be the master of something without owning it. It just means you know that thing the best. It doesn't mean you're its boss. It doesn't mean you control it. You're just the master of it, man. And I, that's an important lesson that Tolkien is teaching us there and teaching, teaching us through Frodo. And I think that's... I, I just really, really like that. It's only a sentence or two, basically, right there. But I just... I was like, yeah, Tolkien, you get it, dude. You get it, J.R.R. That's pretty awesome. Um, and then, so this discussion of Tom on the Audio Dungeon Discord has started leading us into, you know, we're, we're a bunch of gamers, so we're like, huh, what are, the, what are the stats for Tom Bombadil? And Jason mentioned that Merp, you know, you know me and Merp, I love Merp. Uh, Merp had stats for Tom Bombadil and Sauron. And so I was like, oh, damn, dude, sweet. So I got online and I was looking and there's a ton of probably not quite legal Middle Earth role playing game PDFs up on the interwebs these days. So I was like, oh, OK, <laughs> I doubt any of them are accessible, but it's they're there. And so I was digging around and I found out that uh, Treasures of Middle Earth, which I actually have a physical copy of. That actually looks like it has stats for Iru Iluvatar, who's, you know, the over-god of Middle-earth, and all the Valar, which are basically, like, the big main spirits of Middle-earth. And, um, yeah, Jason was like, well, why would you even stat those things out? And that's because if you're playing Merp set in the First Age you have a lot of potential of running into... They are physical entities on the planet. They walk or you fight them. There are, in the Silmarillion, elves go and fight Morgoth. Like, it makes sense that they would have these these beings statted out because they're not... They're not these they physically manifest on the planet during the first age and their, their domain is a physical place in the world in the first age before uh, they move it into the, basically the spirit realm and stuff. And then they don't come down physically onto the planet anymore onto Arda, but in the first age and maybe a little bit in the second age, they're, the Valar are friggin' walking around, man. You could be like, oh, hey, what's up, Tolkis? What's up, Manway? How you doing? Uh, and I think that's awesome, man. It makes sense that the Valar would be statted out. Now, statting out Eru Iluvatar, that's, that's maybe a step too far because Eru never manifests um, down onto Arda. So, yeah, I get that. But it's interesting, right? Because I've been diving back into the Silmarillion again and reading, you know, reading the Lord of the Rings. It's a lot of people talk about how, you know, Christianity is so entrenched into Lord of the Rings and stuff. But when you really get down into it, it's not really that 
one-to-one of an analogy because there are no churches in Middle-earth. There is no religion in Middle-earth. The people of Middle-earth don't worship Eru in the Valar. They know of them, especially early on. They respect them. They're in awe of them. They know how insanely powerful these beings are, but they don't worship them. You know, they'll beseech them and say, oh, please, you know, Varda, give me strength and courage. But they don't worship them. And that's pretty cool. (laughs) That's pretty cool. That goes back to the whole, yes, you can be a master without owning a thing conversation that Tolkien is putting into his story. And I just, I think that's awesome, man. Like, it's really cool. (sighs) Tolkien is just a boss, right? Not that I need to tell anybody that every, most people know that J.R.R. Tolkien is a total boss, but just reading these again. And I, I found a YouTube channel that is, does these really deep, deep dives into Tolkien lore and going back through all the different variations of these stories that have existed through all of Tolkien's letters and notes and everything. Uh, The name of the YouTube channel I also love, it's called Girl Next Gondor, which (laughs) really, that's clever. That's clever. It's like Girl Next Door, but it's Girl Next Gondor. Uh, And she is a total badass, man. She knows her shit. Um, she's some sort of academic. I'm not sure exactly what she is, but she is some sort of academic and does these really amazing deep dives into stuff. And yeah, between that, listening to her and then reading the fellowship again and then hopping around back into the Silmarillion, oh, it, it's really the world of J.R.R. Tolkien is so friggin' deep and rich, and there's so many interconnections that Tolkien is juggling, and he's a total badass. You know, even when I've said, because I said the first two, I found the first two chapters of Fellowship pretty boring, and I do, but that's not because they're badly written or anything. There's a ton of cool beautiful imagery and descriptions in there personally they're just you know nothing really happens but (laughs) i know not everybody needs something to happen all the time yeah so i don't know that's just the stuff on my mind um yeah lord of the rings and the silmarillion and the hobbit and unfinished tales and all of tolkien stuff it's just amazing you know I don't, I haven't read all of it, obviously, and I I don't love every single thing he's ever written, but I do acknowledge and respect and am in awe of what Tolkien did, and when he did it, and how he did it. He started working on this shit back in like 1919. Think about that, man. <laughs> Think about the fact that Lord of the Rings is over 100 years old. That's pretty amazing. 
That's pretty goddamn amazing. Anyway, that's all I wanted to say about Lord of the Rings, so let me get out of here. Well, that's enough for me for today, man. Yeah, thank you so, so much to everybody who called. Thank you to Lex, Lex Mandrake. Hell yeah, dude. Thank you for being a first-time caller and for listening. That's amazing, dude. Thank you to Spencer and Jason and Carl and Merc the Meek. Um, I've actually done a thing and included a bunch of links in the episode description. Look at me. I'm a grown-up podcaster boy. I included the link to Lex Mandrake's uh, Bandcamp page. I included the link to Girl Next Gondor's YouTube page. And, which I forgot to talk about in the episode, I included the link to Merc the Meek's terrain generator that he came up with, sort of based off of Goblin Henchman's Hex Flowers. All things serve the henchmen. Um, but yeah, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go listen to Merc the Meek's episode six, where he talks about his terrain generator. It's really fun. It's really simple. I, I, you know, on, in that episode, Michael asks people to call in, to use the terrain generator and call in and talk about it. And so I did, like I said, super simple. It was really fun. I came up with a little area. Um, go check it out. It's it's great. It's on itch.io. But yeah, I included the link in the show notes. So hooray for me and for everybody for producing awesome, awesome stuff. Thank you all. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, this was this was a fun episode. It's been a while, man, uh, since I put out an episode. But because I haven't been playing many games, like I said earlier, I you know we haven't played Wrath of the Righteous in like a month. Uh, Reaver's been off for a little while. Uh, yeah, and I just haven't been playing a whole lot of games lately, so I felt like I didn't have anything to talk about. But you folks gave me some awesome stuff to talk about. Plus, I had to talk about my new shower, because it's amazing. I gotta take a shower this morning, because why wouldn't I? The shower rules. It kicks ass. It's like, it's like a whole new world in there, and I love everything about it. And yeah, get a shower get a curved shower curtain rod folks it's it's worth it. it it's worth the freaking 25 bucks that it costs um yeah I, I can't recommend it enough anyway <laughs> anyway man i i just yeah 487 episodes crazy whoo I'm glad folks are still listening. That pumps me up. It's been fun. Like I said, this was a fun episode. Lots of great calls. We are playing Wrath of the Righteous this weekend at time of recording, so I'm very excited about that. I've been diving back in and building maps and monsters for book four, uh, getting everything set. I'm already set for the beginning of book four, but now I'm building the stuff for the end of book four. And I, I can't wait, man. Book four is a gnarly, gnarly adventure. It's fantastic. It's, ooh, it, you can tell we're in mid-tier, getting to upper-level play. And I can't wait to do it. It's going to be rad. So that's it. I hope everybody out there is doing well. Um, yeah, take care of yourselves. Take care of other people. And until next time, folks, peace out. Peace out.